You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that Jesus is the greatest person to ever live. There is none like him. There is no one in history like Jesus. There's no one who's had more influence than Jesus. There's no king, there's no general, there's no philosopher, there's no teacher who has had more influence in history than Jesus. He is absolutely, utterly unique. His life, death, and burial, and resurrection have set the global calendar in place for all of us. Everywhere that his teaching goes... What follows behind that is reborn people who start hospitals and charities and orphanages. It shapes jurisprudence wherever it goes. There is none like Jesus. And if I were to ask you, is this really true? Is it really true that Jesus is This person in history, it's going to come back to this one very important thing, and it it stands above all else. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave three days after having been crucified on a Roman cross. Sometimes that good news shapes my whole perspective, and it really opens my eyes to these amazing things. And there are other times when I have doubts I have doubts. I remember when my first, my oldest daughter in fourth grade said to me, Dad, what if it's all bunk? What if what we believe is just all a bunch of bunk? And then I remember saying to her, Hope, it's okay that you have this thought because the truth is capable of standing up to the hardest questions 23-something years ago when I was on a flight uh, from New York City to Amsterdam where I'd be catching another flight to Ghana for my first visit just to train pastors, I ended up sitting in the best seat in coach. It was right there. It was like 10A, which means you had all the leg room at the bulkhead, and and then I had an open seat next to me, and, and then all of a sudden this young guy sits down in the aisle seats, and we get to chatting and congratulating ourselves on the fact that we had the best seat in coach. And uh, he says, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm actually just finishing my fourth year of seminary at Dallas Seminary, and I'm, on a, I'm heading over on a mission trip to train pastors in Western Africa how to preach the Bible, preach the gospel. And uh, he goes, that's funny. He said, I just defended my dissertation in modern philosophy, my PhD. Nice to meet you. My name's Craig. And we had the same thought. I got six hours with this guy. He ain't going anywhere. And so as he pulled and tugged at my faith about the problem of evil, about the mythology and the distance between Jesus' life and all of that, I said, you know something, Craig? I want to tell you something. I don't think I have enough faith to be an atheist And he kind of looked at me with a weird look on his face. And as we walked through some of the complexities about the fact that the earth has a starting point, that it began at one point, it wasn't eternal. As you walk through the problem of pain, I found myself just 
enthralled, not with those facts, but with this one fact, that Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, then everything he said is of the utmost importance. And if he's not alive, you can pretty well ignore the rest of the story of Jesus. He's just one more teacher out there. But if he's alive, and he is alive, then you can put all of your chips in the center of the table, push them forward, and bet on Jesus. Everything that he said is of utmost importance. Everything that he has said is true. And so I don't know where you come into this morning hearing he is alive, he is risen, I don't know if that truth warms your soul. I don't know if you feel distant from that. I don't know if you're hoping for that. But what I want to do is walk you through Luke chapter 24, and I want to show you reason for hope, reason to believe that Jesus is alive, and there's plenty. Luke chapter 24 is in context right next to the dark days that are considered uh, Good Friday and what the church is historically known as Silent or Holy Saturday. Let me just read a few words from Luke 23 to help you understand what they were facing. Luke chapter 23, it says, It was now about the sixth hour. This is three days previous on Friday. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just to give you some context. That's noon to three, and there's complete darkness over the land in Jerusalem. And the sunlight had failed, and the curtain of the temple had been torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This was a crushing, crushing darkness. This was a crushing scene. If you had been there, if we had been there, and we had seen this, if you had seen the crucified Savior, you would want to vomit. You would want to scream. These who had followed him in this time had believed that he was the savior of Messiah, the savior of Israel, the Messiah, that he was the one who would redeem Israel. They had tied their hopes to him. And they believed that he was coming to Jerusalem victoriously. Heavens, only days before, the whole nation seemed to be recognizing he is the son of David who will deliver Israel from its oppressors, the Romans. And here they are, having seen him betrayed, sold, tortured, humiliated, crucified, buried. I don't know if you've ever felt a darkness that felt like it was more than just the absence of light, but it was like a a heaviness. I remember one time... I was in Moscow, the only time I've been in Moscow in uh, the summer of 94, and I remember it being a dreary day as we got there to the, to the airport, and I remember feeling that it wasn't just a dreary day, there was something heavy about the whole place that felt like you were almost wearing the darkness, like it was pressing down on you. 
I think that the darkness that's described here is more than a physical darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. It's a darkness that they could feel. And there they are with their dreams crushed, disoriented by what they had seen, horrified by what they had seen. The one who they had put all their trust in had been killed in front of them by the Romans he was supposed to drive out. And now they're hiding. And now they're afraid. There are some who, quote unquote, follow Jesus, who if he was found to be dead, it wouldn't mean much to them. But not this group. They had tied their whole future to, the, to him. And so when he's crucified, when he's in the grave, they're devastated and they're hiding. And here they wait on what the church has historically called Silent Saturday, where they are dealing with the fear of being next, that maybe they're the next ones that are going to be carried off and executed. They're dealing with the fact that they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen him feed multitudes. They had seen him and heard him in living color and touched him and knew that this was not possible, and yet that was the reality they were dealing with. And this silent Saturday is a time where they sit in silence and in darkness, and they have to face their fears and their doubts while it feels like God is saying nothing Ever been in a season or a moment where you're facing doubts, you're facing fears, and it feels like God is saying nothing? Well, that's where they're at. And that's where some of you are, because in a room this size with a number of people like this, I know that some of you are in a moment or a season where it feels like the dream you had is now dead. It's been ground into a fine powder the agenda that you might have had for your future, for God was going to do this, it didn't happen, and you're crushed, and you don't know what to make of it. Let me say something about Silent Saturday, about Holy Saturday, and why the Lord allows this group and us at times to go through a time where we sit with fear and doubt and what feels like deafening, smothering silence, God will allow that into their lives and he will allow it into our lives because there is a purpose in the silence. There is a purpose of refining where God helps you hear in that silence things you were otherwise unwilling to hear about yourself, about him, about what you're really afraid of. And when it is darkest and when it is most intimidating and smothering, remember this, in that darkness... Sunday is coming. <laughs> this isn't just going to last forever. It's a season, and it has a purpose. And if you never feel the darkness, if you never hear the silence, you'll not be able to celebrate the first words of Luke chapter 24, but on the first day of the week. Just stop there for a second, because Luke intended you to say, Oh my gosh, 23 at the end of that chapter, it feels like everything is lost because it is. But on the first day of the week, something different is happening. Death doesn't get the final word. 
death doesn't get to write the future. Death doesn't get to define the now or look back and define the past because on the first day of the week when all they had was despair and because they still loved their Lord, they were willing to go and anoint his body with spices, but they were going to see a dead Savior. What good is a dead Savior? Whatever the darkness is, you can be met with these beautiful words, but on the first day of the week, contrast to what you have just read. When nothing but smothering guilt and fear and shame are upon you, but on the first day of the week, when you look for Jesus, you're going to find out he's not in a grave. He's not in a grave. And the proclamation, the best news that has ever been given to anybody at any time, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Golly, come on, feel that with me. This world we live in will smother you sometimes. Your dreams will be ground into a fine powder. You'll feel like God doesn't see or care. But in that silence, God is at work. In that darkness, 1 Peter chapter 3 says Jesus was busy at that time making proclamation of his victory to the saints that were in bond or to the spirits that were in bondage. You couldn't see it, you couldn't hear it, first century church, but he was at work in a way you would have never imagined. Friends, I want you to hear this. Some of the worst, darkest moments that you'll ever face are going to be met with, but on the first day of the week. He was alive, not dead. And that's going to rewrite the whole script. It's going to change everything. You look for Jesus, you won't find him in a tomb. You will not find him in a grave. He is alive. He is uh, reigning on high. And that's going to change everything. Silent Sunday has a purpose. Dark, quiet moments have a purpose. God is at work in ways we could never imagine. Now, I want you to hear what the angels have said. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And then he's, they say this. Actually, two angels. It says, remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must, underline that word must, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and on the third day rise again. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus speaking to two of the followers on the road to Emmaus, he says this in verse, uh, I can't see that verse, but it says, O foolish ones, slow, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not, quote unquote, necessary, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things before he enters into his glory? So I want to draw your attention to these words that Jesus has said beforehand, that this, the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer. It's necessary that he would suffer. Why? I mean, if God is going to forgive us, why not just blink, snap, and that's, that's not a blink, that's a snap, and why not just do that and say you're forgiven? And I'll tell you why. Sin had to be atoned for. Sin had to be atoned for. God had to, in his holiness, 
atone for sin. I remember many years ago, one of my favorite preachers and favorite thinkers, a man named R.C. Sproul, He's gone on to be with the Lord now, but many years ago when he was debating with an atheist, he said that after the debate was over and after we were just kind of back in the back and there was nobody else listening, it wasn't for applause, it wasn't for winning the debate. He says, I looked at this man and said, but I want to know one thing. What do you do with your guilt? He goes, what do you mean my guilt? He goes, you know exactly what I mean, your guilt. You know that there's a person that you ought to be that you're not. You ought to be brave. You ought to be sacrificial. You ought to be kind. You ought to be generous. You ought to be a lot of things. You know that and I know that, and you don't measure up to that. So what do you do with your guilt? And the guy said, you caught me flat-footed on this one. And Sproul said to him, I'll tell you what you do with your guilt. You try harder to be a better person or you try to ignore your guilt. But let's not pretend that you don't have guilt for the person that you ought to be. It's called in philosophy, and the atheists will use this term, the problem of ought. (laughs) What is it globally throughout history that that people believe they ought to be something, they ought to be somebody, and they're not? And because of that, they create... Get this, religion, things they ought to do that they don't do. Well, we've got religion. We can start trying harder. We can make sacrifices. We can do that. See, it is written into your heart and mine that we ought to be somebody that we are not. We have transgressed against the law of God written on our hearts. We've sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that our first parents in the garden, were given everything they needed, companionship, provision. They were given the highest and greatest gift, which was that they could walk and talk with God. There was nothing separating them from God. And he gave them one rule. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you do, you will surely die. This will be the penalty for your sin. And we know what they did. They transgressed. They eat of that forbidden fruit, they sin against God. And that day, they were separated from God because of sin. Sin got between them and God, and the curse of death was laid upon them, and it worked outward from there, affecting them, their children, all the way to us. It affected nature. It affected everything. And the interesting thing is that God made skins for Adam and Eve. Now, how do you make skins when they're wearing their fig leaves to hide themselves and cover up? Well, they're ashamed of themselves because of the sin. By the way, sin always does that to us. Sin makes us want to cover ourselves, hide ourselves, dress ourselves up. And so they've covered themselves in fig leaves, and God says, Drop those fig leaves. I will make skins for you. A skin would have to come from one of the animals there in the garden. Some animal was sacrificed. Its blood was shed so that they could be covered. And this would happen all the way through the Old Testament. It would keep on going. In the book of Exodus, we'd see in chapter 12 something called the Passover where a lamb would be slain and its blood would be put on the doorposts and on the lintel. And that would be a sign of sacrifice on how God would free you. Leviticus chapter 16, we see this thing called the Day of Atonement. 
where the priest comes in, the priest slaughters a bull as a sacrifice for himself, and then he takes two goats, and one of them is given over and sacrificed to the Lord for the people, and another one is let go into the wilderness. We call this the scapegoat. And so what is God doing? He's showing that sacrifice and bloodshed are a part of how he will make atonement until the day that Jesus arrives. Jesus says that he must be handed over It was necessary that he suffer, and he points back to all of the prophets in the Old Testament and Moses and says, they were really not just in and of themselves talking about themselves, they were pointing to me because I would be the Lamb of God who would be the final sacrifice to do what? To make atonement. To make atonement. It's kind of a religious word, but you can kind of hear some of what's happening there, at-one-ment. At onement. Atonement is at one It means to make one, that we are separated from God. And he says, But I will make a way for you to be one with God again. And the Hebrews actually, when they understood this word, they would say it means to expiate, to cleanse, or to purge. So, how is Jesus going to atone for us to make us one with the Father again? He is going to cleanse us from our sin way better than any bull ever could, way better than any lamb ever could, he would be the final sacrifice for our sins. So where do we go with our guilt? Where do we go with the problem of ought, who I ought to be and I'm not? I can try harder, but that's not gonna work. I can try to ignore my guilt, but that's not going to work. Or I can go to my Savior, and I can say to him, I'm not who I hoped I would be, Are any of you sitting here today who you hoped you would be if you had the chance to really see your soul like God sees it, to see the sin, to see the selfishness? It'd be worse than we thought. But the good news is we have somewhere to go with the problem of ought. We have a Savior. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to enjoy the gift from the Old Testament, what Jesus, or what the Lord speaks of Jesus. It says this, now listen to these words. He, Jesus, was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken from God, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crucified for our iniquities, he was crushed, pardon me, for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, do you see this? Every other religion in the world gives you a set of rules. Christ gives you, it is finished. 
it is paid for. It's a proclamation that the sin that had to be atoned for, not just the sin of the world, but the sin that is in you, the sin that is in me, the failure to do what God had called us to do, to be who God had called us to be, our transgressions and our failures. He was pierced. He was crushed so that we could have our sins atoned for. It was necessary. He must be given over. And we have in him a holy, acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He is the Lamb of God that is accepted as sacrifice, perfect Lamb of God. Some lambs would not be accepted by the priest in the Old Testament. They'd say, this lamb is not good enough. It is marred in some way. And so they would reject that lamb. In Jesus, we have a perfect lamb of God who takes away our sin. Now, this is good news, right? Because we don't have to get on the treadmill of, well, I'll try harder. We don't have to busy ourselves so we don't think about the fact that we are sinners. We have a Savior who we can come to and we can say, I need you. I've fallen short. I need forgiveness. I need you to expiate, to cleanse to take away my sin. That's what we have in Jesus. That's what happened on Good Friday. What was for them the worst possible Friday they'd ever seen turned into the greatest Friday because they could look back and say, that's the day my sin was paid for. Now, friends, please hear me on this. You and I need a Savior there is a problem of ought that still exists in us when we stop looking at him. We start pretending that we're better than we are. We start hiding that fact. It's a narrative of defeat that can shape your whole perspective. But I want you to know this. There is a reason why this good news is not just pie in the sky. It's not just something we can go, oh, huh, that's good. No, no, no. It's way better than that. Because we have something wonderful. It's this, that our Savior was raised bodily, physically, from the grave. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't believe any of this. This is a historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that his dead body that had no heartbeat, no blood in the veins, no firing synapses, that it had been dead and buried in the ground. And on the third day, that heart physically started beating again. His brain started firing again. The exact same body that had been crucified is the one that now gets up and walks out of that tomb. And if this is not true, then Christianity is not true. And I know for some people, they want to say, well, I think the resurrection is really more of a moral story of victory over darkness. It's so much more than that. He is physically alive. He was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, we can put our hope in him. Everything he said is true, and he was raised for our justification. That means when he was raised from the dead, death had no grip on him. Death had no compelling strength to hold him. He was greater than death, greater than our sin. 
And because of that, everything is brand new. Everything is changed. And I don't want you to imagine that somehow this is just some thing that they imagined that they saw maybe a spirit. Well, how do I know that? I want you to look with me at chapter 24, and I want you to see what the Lord Jesus says to some of the followers who witnessed his physical resurrection as he stood among them. It says that as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were scared and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why are doubts rising in your hearts? Can we just stop for a moment? I want to point something out to you. One, in his physical resurrected body, he goes through locked doors. He's not inhibited by any barriers. And he stands among them and he greets them and he knows what they're thinking and he says, why are you troubled of heart and have rising doubts? It's important that you hear those words. Troubled hearts, rising doubts. Because the answer to their troubled hearts and rising doubts is a physical examination of his resurrected body. I want to say it like this. <laughs> if Jesus is not our sacrifice, then he can't be our savior, right? If he's not our sacrifice, then all we've got is a measure of how to do it right, but we don't have a savior. But if he dies a physical death, if he pays for our sin, then we've got a sacrifice that is perfect. And if we have a sacrifice, then we've got a savior if he gets up on the third day. Your sins have gone on to him and they could not hold him down. Jesus paid that penalty and then he rose again. And if you have fear and doubt and a troubled heart, here's your confidence. Jesus is alive. He's alive. Your sin, our sin, was not enough to submerge him and hold him down. He was greater than sin. He was greater than death. And if he rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. So I've stood over tiny caskets before. When I was a chaplain uh, working at a bank when I was in seminary, a three-year-old had drowned in the bathtub they didn't have a pastor. All they knew was me, and they said, hey, Robert, we're grief-stricken. Can you please come? And I got to tell you, I barely got through that. There's nothing worse than a short casket. And, and I'm supposed to be there encouraging them. And all I could do is kind of mutter and sob. But death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't write the story. Jesus writes the story. He's raised from the dead. I miss my dad. I, my mom, my wife misses her mom terribly. It's this time of year that it hits so hard around Mother's Day because she died around this time. You miss somebody. Death doesn't get the final word. Can you hear me? Jesus is alive, and because Jesus is alive, death doesn't get to tell the story, he does. 
And when you think that he's doing nothing and you think that there's no hope, you've got to look back and say, if they got to see this resurrected Savior and he is alive and living in us, then death doesn't get the final word. I, I don't know why, like for me, I, I, I forget this, that if he's alive, then this is only the beginning. This is this tiny little chapter where we live by faith and then we come home and we live in immortal, imperishable bodies like his and we will live forever with those who we long for and miss right now. Now I've been to the field where David fought Goliath. I've been there twice. There's nothing out there. Like everywhere in Israel you go, there's like a shop selling something because, man, tourists are arriving. There's nothing out there. And it's a field that they can find. They know this is where it happened. We know the story, right? David goes out there because Goliath, representing all of the Philistines, says, I am here. Your God's a joke. Your, your, your religion is stupid. Your God isn't powerful, I, my God is powerful, and I want you to bring me a champion. You get one guy from your side, and I'll represent my side, and we'll fight. And it's a winner-take-all type of thing. If I win, you become the slaves of the Philistines, and if he wins, we'll become your slaves. And so if I'm an Israelite soldier standing on the sidelines and my representative is a 16-year-old against that loudmouth, scary goon, what, am I th what are you thinking as your representative in a winner-takes-all battle is a kid with a slingshot up against a scary, frightening Monster. Because if, if my guy loses, I lose, he loses, my wife loses, my family loses, my nation loses, and apparently everything this guy has said about God is true. So this is a winner-take-all situation. Let me tell you something. That is in micro. That story is in micro what these three days in Jerusalem are in macro, Jesus took on something far scarier than Goliath, a scarier, louder goon. And he was our representative. And when he faced off with sin and death, not the devil, when he faced off with sin and death, it looked as though he had been crushed and defeated it looked as if we were all losing there with him. And that would make us slaves forever. <laughs> but Jesus came alive on that third day and he declared victory over sin and death for us. And when he wins, we win. And he is alive. And I don't have to be afraid of sin and death anymore because my representative, my king, took the field of battle and he won for us. And we are free because he is alive. 1988, spring of 1988, I had been raised in a household where mom was uh, 
a disobedient believer. Dad was not a believer at all. Um, go every summer to spend the summer with my grandparents because my parents both worked. And we lived in Salina, Kansas. We had to drive to Cleburne, Texas. Anybody ever been to Cleburne? Yeah, see, I'd say that up north and people are like, huh, Cleburne? I'm like, oh, you must have heard of Italy, Texas. That's where my dad's from. No, Cleburne, Italy, no. But uh, we would go to my grandparents' house, go to Field Street Baptist Church. And um, Pastor Graham would preach and, and I, I got saved. I got saved. I heard the message that came forward, you know, and I prayed the prayer and I, you know, I'm, I said all that, and then I went back home, and it felt like I just drifted away from God. And I was always questioning, did I get saved? Was I really saved, or was it just a moment where I felt emotions and I prayed? I don't know, but I'll tell you that from that time in probably about fourth grade until I was a senior, I kind of lived like, like a rebel. And I lived, I mean, just with a chip on my shoulder, and like a lot of teenage kids at that time, I just was not living a pure life. You can fill in the blanks. You don't need to know the details. But the truth is I was just a hard-hearted rebel, an immoral young man. And I remember having a lot of the things that I thought were supposed to make me happy. You know, a nice car. You know, I, I worked. I look back on that as a blessing. I'm not sure that everybody sees that these days. But I, I had a, a job that I liked. I had a girlfriend that I thought was pretty. I had all that stuff. And I laid in my bed at night feeling empty, empty, physically, like something here was not right. And all I knew to do was start praying the Lord's Prayer as I dozed off at night. Kind of felt guilty about that too. Doze off, falling asleep, saying the Lord's Prayer. You know, and I went, after getting dumped by my girlfriend at the time, I went to the gym and tried to rebuild my confidence with some weights. That's a slippery foothold, isn't it? Um, that's what I did, and I ran into a friend, and he said, and he was just glowing with excitement, and I said, what's your deal? He said, oh, my girlfriend dumped me last night. I said, and you're happy about this? He said, well, she said that our relationship was getting in the way of her relationship with Jesus, and if she had to choose, she's choosing Jesus over me, so she dumped me. And he said, well, last night I just gave my life back to the Lord. I'd done it as a kid, but I kind of walked away, and I just gave my life right back to him. And I said, we need to talk, because I'm on the same path. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And he, he didn't know much of anything. He says, Robert, what you need to do is, is just pray and tell God you're sorry and tell him what you're going to start doing or what you're going to stop doing. Tell him Because he knew me well enough to know he and I were both doing some rotten things. <laughs> and uh, so I went home. I got on my knees and I said to God, I'm sorry for all these rotten things I've been doing for this rebellious life. And I just kind of waited. I'm like, come on, come on. Give me that glow that Aaron had. Give me that thing that makes me know that you heard this prayer and I'm telling you, the silence was deafening. Nothing, and I mean nothing, happened. And then I decided, uh, the next day, I, okay, I get it. You can't just say what you're going to stop doing. You've got to tell them what you're going to do. You've got to tell them what you're going to do. And so I, I got back down on my knees the next day, and I told them, I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start going to church. I thought the height of nobility was to find an old person and help them get across the street. So I was determined, whether you want it or not, I'm helping you get across this street because that's the height of nobility. And so I was on the march looking for that. And I, I just really thought that's what God wanted, was a 
kind of a, you know, hey, I'm going to do better. And that's when the real breaking started. Because I'm utterly convinced of this, that he said no. Well, what am I going to do? If you won't accept me with my best efforts here, then how are we going to be all right? And I felt like God said no. And I'm almost sure that Satan whispered to me that day, you think he's going to take you back after you walked away all these years? And I remember being so crushed that I was in the boys' bathroom in the second period, I still remember where it was at, crying in the stall. I felt like God said no, and I couldn't stand it. A young life leader found me in there, and I thought I was a tough guy at the time. And he said, hey, why don't you go back to God and offer no deals? Tell him you're empty-handed, you got nothing, and you just want to be right with him. You got no chips to barter with. How about this? God, I hope I do better I'm sorry for the life of rebellion I've lived. God, forgive me. God, save me. I've got nothing to offer but a broken heart. That day, the lights didn't flicker, but something changed, friends. God saved me and has held on to me all these years. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is alive and the invitation is yours today. You have nothing to barter with. And you don't need anything to barter with. Jesus has atoned for your sins. All of them. Past, present, and future. He made payment to purge, to cleanse you from your sins. He stands alive today inviting you. Come and taste and see, life in me is good. I will save you apart from your works. I will give you eternal life, and I will never leave you. That's the invitation for you today. And friends, if you have believed in him, and you've wandered from him, confess that and say, I just want to come home. I want to be close to you, Lord. I want you to take me again. Hold me close again, and he will do that. Jesus is alive. Forgiveness is ours, and it will never change. Pray with me.